Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Tim and Julie Harris with Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching Radio. And today we have a very special guest. Peter Schiff is a well-known American investment broker, author, economic forecaster, and investment advisor. His strategy is strongly influenced by the free market Austrian School of Economics. He is credited with accurately predicting the 2007 housing market collapse and the subsequent 2008 financial crisis in the United States. His expertise in financial matters and economic theory has made him sought-after speaker and analyst at various forums. His views and predictions have been aired across the spectrum of media, including the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, CNN, and even Al Jazeera. He also hosts his own radio and television shows and runs a video blog and podcast on financial matters. Schiff started his career as a stockbroker and went on to establish various financial establishments, including a brokerage firm and bank. His investment strategy focuses on long-term wealth savings with emphasis on emerging market and commodity-focused investments. He's a strong supporter of the Libertarian Party and contested for the Republican nomination to the 2010 United States Senate elections in Connecticut. So without further ado, here is Mr. Peter Schiff. It's our pleasure to welcome you as our guest. Yes, and our neighbor. And And our neighbor. And our friend. So thank you for being on our podcast. We sincerely appreciate it. Oh, sure, sure. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. We've been trying. We've been trying to set this up, as you may look, as you may be thinking about it, over the last two years to get you on the show. So finally, we uh, you yes. said yes, so we appreciate well, it. <laughs> persistence pays off, I guess. Being a neighbor, that doesn't hurt either. So <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Um, so we're going to talk about the reason that there's a whole bunch of reasons that we wanted uh, Peter on our podcast. But from Julie and I, from a personal perspective, and I've told Peter this before, Peter was a significant influence on Julie and I's life back in 2005, 2006, and 2007, when we saw from the coaching perspectives, we saw in all these different markets, we saw signs of the market was definitely going to have some sort of uh, interruption of some variety. No one predicted except for maybe Peter and a handful of other people how significant that would be. But because Julie and I listened to Peter Schiff and a couple other people back when when everyone else was saying housing would never crash, because we did listen (laughs) to him, we positioned ourselves uh, personally and professionally to be ready for it and then to prepare all of you guys for who are coaching clients, teaching you guys how to do short sales and work with distressed real estate and and all of that. So Peter was instrumental in our uh, formidable years of learning how to pivot when the markets are shifting. So Peter, again, I'm going to publicly thank you for your influence on that. Thank you. We owe you a debt of gratitude. And you saw it certainly before we did. We were lucky enough to be paying attention, reading your books, listening to you and took action. I think at least significantly, you know, before we probably would have. So thank you for that. Right. And so let's be cognizant though, of what's coming ahead, because it's going to look a lot different than the 08 financial crisis. So the dynamics are going to be different. Uh, and the implications for the markets are different in the way that you have to position yourself. And that is the reason we wanted you on today's show. So we wrote a whole bunch of questions down and you can, you, you can drill down on any of these as long as you want, obviously, 
or, and where we're hoping to go is tactical, practical information. So these guys can prepare themselves for the changes that are inevitable, but also then prepare their own clients, real estate clients. And, you know, maybe we have probably 10% of all of our listeners are not in real estate, they're business owners. So let's start out with a real basic question. What is inflation? Well, inflation is an expansion of the money supply. That is what the word means. If you think about the word inflate as a word, well, what is inflate? Well, inflate means to expand, right? If you uh, inflate a balloon, the balloon expands. So what is expanding when you talk about inflation? It's the money supply. The government creates new money, puts more money into circulation. That expansion is known as inflation. Deflation is the opposite. You contract the money supply and money supply deflates, just like a balloon. You fill it with air, it expands, it's inflated. You deflate the balloon, the air comes out, it contracts. So that's what happens to money supply. It expands and contracts. Now, there are many effects of an expansion of the money supply. One is that prices rise, or sometimes prices may fall, but they'll just fall by less than they would have otherwise fallen had there been no inflation. Uh, but people confuse the result of inflation with inflation itself. And if they don't see a rise in consumer prices, they just assume there's no inflation. But there could be a lot of inflation. Maybe without all that inflation, consumers would have benefited from falling prices. But instead of benefiting from falling prices and a lower cost of living, they're suffering higher prices. And the difference is inflation. Okay, that makes sense. So there's a lot of, I, I, Julie and I listened to your podcast, um, The Peter Schiff Show. You guys should listen to it as well. So on, you've been talking a lot about inflation. You've been talking about inflation really, I mean, since we started listening to you years ago, but a lot in the last two years. And so the normal rate of inflation is the next question, but I know the normal rate all depends on what the government is doing to you know, what consumer prices and whatnot it's tracking to really come up with the normal inflation rate. But what is historically the normal rate of inflation and what are you seeing that's happening now? Well, there is no normal rate. I mean, ideally, if you're talking about prices, consumer prices, because most people, when they talk about inflation, talk about, you know, consumer prices. The normal thing in a free market economy for consumer prices is to go down. That's what's normal. And in fact, if you look at the U.S. economy in the 18th century, right, from 1800, or rather the 19th century, the 1800s, from 1801 to 1900, prices fell for 100 years. I mean, the general price level in 1900 was half of what it was in 1800. So things, prices cut, were cut in half over 100 years. And, and during that 100-year period of falling prices, Americans prospered. I mean, if you look at the second half of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, um, those, that economic growth that we enjoyed as Americans during that period far exceeds anything that's taken place since, either in the, the 20th or now the 21st century. So we had massive economic growth, yet prices were going down pretty much every year. So we don't get that anymore. Uh, we get rising prices. I don't know what the normal rate, the historic average uh, rate is certainly lower in the last decade than it has been. But a lot of that is 
based on the way the, met, the government measures prices. Because over time, the CPI, right, or some of the other official government yardsticks have been dramatically altered so that no matter how much prices go up, the CPI doesn't really reflect that. And I think that is by design. I mean, the government creates inflation deliberately for its own uh, purposes, its own benefit, but then it wants to cover up the effects of inflation so the public doesn't complain and the Fed can continue to justify its monetary policy. But, you know, if we still measured prices using the exact CPI that we used to measure them in the 70s, I think the annual gains would already be well into the double digits. In fact, for 2021, the first digit may be a two, not even a one. That's how bad it already is. And it's going to be even worse in 2022. So paint us a picture about that, Peter. What what do you believe is the the real, if if you can, because I've talked, I've heard you talk and you just mentioned that how they report it isn't exactly covering everything. It's mixed uh, statistics. What do you think the real uh, rate of inflation of inflation is now? And paint us a picture for a year out. Where are we headed? Well, it's high. I think it's, again, it's double digits. It's north of 10% and headed higher. And there's no relief in sight. If anything, it's going to get worse because from the government's perspective, allowing inflation to get worse is better than fighting it. Because if they fight it, they're going to immediately set off a chain of events that is politically a non-starter, right? If the federal government were to, or the Fed were to fight inflation, we would have not only another real estate crash, stock market crash, bond market crash, we'd be in a depression and the US government would have to slash uh, spending. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about how much new stimulus we're gonna get. It would be how much of the old stimulus are we gonna lose, right? The government would have to contract. See, there's a big difference. If you look at where we were in the housing bubble that kind of popped you know, in 07, right? The Federal Reserve under Greenspan lowered interest rates to 1%. That was a mistake. And then it took the Fed a long time to get back up to around 5%. That was also a mistake. And during that period of time, we inflated this housing bubble. But at least the Fed tried to normalize interest rates. And it was the increase in interest rates that pricked that housing bubble because it increased the cost of financing a home. And then by increasing the finance costs, it you know, made homes uh, more expensive. More people couldn't, you know, people could no longer afford to pay those prices. Prices started to fall. When prices started to fall, people started mailing in their keys because they, they couldn't make their payments. A lot of people had adjustable rate mortgages that reset with the higher rates. And you know, it was a collapse. But this time, the Fed lowered interest rates to zero which was an even bigger mistake than one and has left them there pretty much for the last 12 years. I mean, there was maybe one year, one and a half years where, you know, we got above zero, we got up to about 2% and then we went right back down to zero, but the Fed never normalized interest rates, nor do I think they have any intention of even lifting interest rates above zero. So rather than pricking the real estate bubble, 
what they're going to do is end up pricking the dollar bubble, which is an even bigger bubble. We're going to have massive inflation. And then instead of real estate prices crashing, they end up going, going up even more because the dollar crashes instead. And as the dollar loses value, you need more and more dollars to buy anything, right? That would include real estate. But where I think you're going to see the decline in real estate values, as well as stock values and all sorts of other assets, is if you measure them in the price of gold. Because well, I we're, think- We're going to get to that towards the end. Yeah. And I also want to talk to you about hyperinflation too, because yeah. that's something we're seeing more and more people talk about. The next question we wrote down, so in real estate, they say the average rate of uh, appreciation for a house every year has historically been about 3%, appreciation, inflation, mm -hmm. call it what you will. So can you explain to them what the difference is between appreciation and inflation in economic terms? Well, in appreciation, you would think of uh, the real value of an asset uh, over time. If it's appreciating, it is gaining a value. Uh, but if its price is only rising as a reflection of inflation, really a loss of value of the money that you're using to measure uh, prices, then it's not a real appreciation. It's like if I measure myself with a ruler, 12 inch ruler, and I'm six feet tall, and then I knock an inch off the ruler, so now the ruler only has 11 inches, and now I'm, you know, what, six and a half feet tall, I didn't grow just because I'm measuring my height with a smaller ruler. So if the dollar loses value, and now you price your assets, in dollars that have diminished value, that doesn't mean that the asset uh, is actually appreciated. It just means the currency that you're measuring it in has depreciated. And I think that's really what's going on with residential real estate. It's reacting to inflation because there's no reason for real estate to appreciate unless you improve it, right? You actually physically have to do something to the house, make it better. Because if you just live in a house, you know, it's going to depreciate over time because it, you're using it. You're, it wears out like anything else. And unless you spend a lot of money maintaining the house, it's going to lose value even faster. I mean, think about all the houses, you know, in our neighborhood that are teardowns. I mean, what is a teardown? A house that used to have a lot of value and now it's worthless uh, because it's out of date, you know, and you, people want to get rid of it and build something new. Uh, what, what could make real estate appreciate is if the location, for example, becomes a lot more desirable, again, like what we're experiencing here, where you have a lot more demand for real estate in one area, but that would come at the expense of a loss of demand for real estate someplace else. Because if a lot of people want to move into a particular location, because now that location is more desirable, well, they're moving from someplace else. So that other location is becoming less desirable. So in aggregate, you're not seeing any real increase in value. You're just seeing some markets going up as other markets are going down. But to see the entire real estate market going up by 2% or 3% a year, that's really a reflection of money losing value and therefore real estate being more expensive to buy, even though it's depreciating because you're using it. Right? But then if you improve it, if you buy a house and you add a bedroom or you redo the kitchen with, and you make it nicer, that can make it more valuable because you added value, you spent money. But once you've made those improvements, as you use them, 
the house gradually deteriorates again because you're using it. Just like you buy a car, nobody buys a car and expects it to be more valuable after they've driven it for a few years. You know, it loses value. Houses also lose value. They just lose value more slowly than cars. Except in this time when what used cars are selling at their 25-year <laughs> peak. Yeah, that's crazy, that's right? Crazy. Parallel well, that's inflation. That's, that, that's really yeah, what's yeah, going sure. on where, where used car prices. And, you know, I think used car prices are going to keep rising. But again, it's because the money is falling. Everything is getting more expensive. It's not just cars. I mean, just whatever you want to buy. I mean, look at food prices. Look at toiletries. Look at what it costs to buy toothpaste, deodorant, shampoo. You know, I mean, everything. I forget, you know, they always try to calculate how much it costs to make a Thanksgiving dinner. Well, it's going to be not only a new record uh, this Thanksgiving for how expensive, you know, the turkey is and, and all the fixings, but it could be the largest annual increase we've experienced didn't they they did that last year and didn't they have there was like uh hidden inflation right they were saying a can of this and a can of that but what they didn't take an account for it was actually less quantity so they didn't probably yeah it was not a 20 pound turkey it was like a five pound turkey but it was still a turkey Mm -hmm. so this actually leads this leads to the next question um you know julie and i but I'm a, you know, 51 and Julie's 35. She's been 35 for the last 15 years. I'm repeating the year. She's been, you know, 35 (laughs) for 15 years. But so we've never, the last time there was any inflation, we were kids and a vast majority of the people listening to this podcast, they've never really experienced inflation before. And and so we can intellectualize that, but actually to live with inflation where consumer prices are increasing and gas prices are increasing, people are just starting to experience that. And it feels almost like an anomaly, not like the new normal. So well, what way, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was gonna say we've had inflation. We just haven't acknowledged it. We've kind of been, you know, covering it up. And one of the ways we've been able to offset the benefits, I mean, offset the cost of inflation is through outsourcing. So when you and I first started to grow up, almost everything that we bought was made here in America. But now almost everything we buy is made someplace else. And that's because as the cost of producing things went up in America, we kept relying on on foreigners. And so now, you know, uh, we, we pay for the inflation in different ways. Like when, back in the 1970s, if I needed to buy something, I went to the store and I bought it and it was fully assembled when I brought it home. Now I want to buy something. It was made in China. It comes on a truck from Amazon and it takes me two or three hours to put it together. Right. Because I've got instructions that you can barely read. You know, I always end up with extra pieces. Uh, But, you know, how much is my time worth? Right. We don't measure the fact that something that used to be assembled now requires hours of my time to put together. You know, there are a lot of things. I mean, we've automated. So, uh, you know, you, you, you have to deal with computers. You don't have live people that answer the phones. And so a lot of th- stuff takes longer because the computer, you know, doesn't really understand what you're saying. And you get trapped in this, you know, voicemail hell, you know, whereas before everybody had real people answer the phones right away. So we found ways to get around rising prices, uh, but in ways that have really diminished our standard of living. I think a lot of products have suffered in quality, the, 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 the type of material that is used. Uh, has declined or the ingredients, uh, you know, we don't have uh, all the fresh foods that we used to have. I mean, now you want to buy something that's organic. You don't want all these, you know, pesticides, whatever. It costs a lot of money, but, you know, 
20, 30 years ago, everything was organic. I mean, that's how everything got farmed. And, but we had to find more ways of producing stuff. And so we don't capture it. You know, I, I did an experiment. This was in 2013 to show you just how bad the CPI is. So I looked at the CPI and I, I did a YouTube video about this back in 2013. But the government had claimed that newspaper and magazine prices over the 10 year period that ended in 2013, that the prices were up 30% during that 10 year period. And so I decided to check because it's not hard to check. You just look at the magazine, see the price, and then look, you know, go on the internet and look at the prices, you know, you know, covers the photographs from 2003. And I took the top 20 circulating newspapers and magazines in the country. And when I actually compared the price written on the cover in 2013 with the price written on the covers in 2003, the actual rate of increase was about 130%, not 30%. So there was a 100% increase that somehow got missed by the CPI. Now, how? I have no idea. Like you put the price in and then the price comes out at the other end and it's not nearly as big an increase as what was actually there. So I don't know the, me the mechanics, how the CPI did that. I just know that it did it. And I think it was deliberately designed to really hide the true degree to which prices are rising. And again, that's by design. The government doesn't want us to know. But what's different now is that the inflation that we're experiencing now as far as consumer prices is so much greater than what we were experiencing in the past that it's far more noticeable and it's a much bigger problem. And that problem is gonna get a lot worse. Well, so who benefits from inflation? Well, you, when you understand what inflation is, it's pretty clear who benefits. So first of all, inflation transfers wealth from creditors to debtors. Because if you borrow money and then there's a lot of inflation, when you pay back the money you borrowed, it is less valuable than the money that you borrowed. So if you could borrow money, for example, and use it to buy a piece of real estate, and then there's a lot of inflation, mm -hmm. and the value of that money goes down, when you pay off the mortgage, the lender is not getting returned to him money that has the same purchasing power as it was when he loaned it to you. So that lender loses, and the borrower wins at the lender's expense because he gets the benefit of using the, the, the loan to buy a real asset that holds its value and then repays the loan in money that has lost its value. And so let's say there's hyperinflation or you know, very, very high inflation. If I borrow, you know, uh, you know, say $500,000 to buy a house and then there's hyperinflation and you know, you need $500,000 to buy a pack of chewing gum. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what is the lender getting back for the money that he loaned me? He loaned me enough money to buy a house. And all I'm doing is giving him back enough money to buy a pack of gum, right? So it's the lender that loses. And if you look at who is the biggest, I mean, debtor in the world, it's the U.S. government. The U.S. government has a national debt of almost $30 trillion. And so if there's 10% inflation, that knocks $3 trillion off the debt, right? So the government wins. Who loses? 
the bondholders, the people that bought U.S. treasuries or anybody that holds U.S. dollars, they suffer that loss that the government gains. But the government also uh, has all sorts of ways that it benefits from inflation. Uh, inflation creates phony gains that they tax, right? People have appreciation in their assets. The government taxes it, but it's not real appreciation. It's dollar depreciation. Also, Social Security is indexed to inflation. And to the extent that they lie about inflation and then they don't have to increase Social Security as much, that's a way to reduce Social Security benefits without voting to cut them. And that's, you know, that's what they want to do. They want to cut benefits without having to be on record as voting for the cut. So inflation benefits the government in all sorts of ways. Uh, and of course, when the Federal Reserve monetizes the debt, creates inflation by printing money, they're buying U.S. Treasuries. They're monetizing the debt. They're making it easier for the government to finance its debts. And by artificially limiting interest rates, because that's what inflation does, the government is, the Fed is printing money and buying bonds to keep interest rates down. That enables the government to continue to service its debt. Because if interest rates were allowed to go up, uh, the government would have to default. Sounds so like a big chess game. The next <laughs> question, actually, Julia, this is a good one for you. Mm -hmm. About the top can, of the yeah, this one yeah right so can inflation lead to deflation or are prices slash values resetting Sorry. to you just did that to what they used to be I think is what it said yeah to, like so, like what what happens to does it stop do the prices keep there and then they level out and they stay high because we hear all the time people are they're saying well it's a bubble and all bubbles pop and prices are going to come down we just have to wait it out what what happens at the peak, does it stay high or does what causes it to deflate? Well, there is a cycle and inflation can lead to deflation. Deflation can lead to inflation depending on how the Federal Reserve reacts. So if the Federal Reserve reacts to inflation with aggressive rate hikes, then and contracts the money supply, which is what it should do, we will have a deflation. My concern is the Fed won't do that. And in fact, any sign of deflation is immediately met with inflation because the government is so scared of deflation, even if we get close to it, even if we just get lower inflation, not actual deflation, but if the, the inflation rate gets too low, the government panics because they're so worried that we might get deflation that they preemptively create even more inflation to try to prevent that from happening. But if we did have a big deflation, what would the government do? They'd print a bunch of money. They'd slash interest rates. So any deflation automatically leads to a surge in inflation. But whether inflation will eventually produce another round of deflation depends on what the Federal Reserve does. Again, I think at this point, the stakes are too high. Uh, and they've already staked out their position. Really, they're staying at zero. Uh, they're not going anywhere. Uh, and if inflation gets worse, well, they're just going to pretend it's not a problem. They're going to pretend it's transitory. Then they'll pretend it's a good thing. Uh, but the only thing they won't do is fight it because they can't. I mean, if the Fed could actually fight inflation, they'd be doing it right now. It's already bad enough that they should be doing something. The reason that they're not is because they can't, but they can't admit that. So they're pretending they will if inflation ever became a problem, even though it's already a huge problem right now. Wow, that's a lot to understand. So we have thousands of people all over the world listening. A lot of them, of course, here in the US, but most are in the residential real estate business. What should they be doing to position themselves for what you feel is coming next 
with this discussion? What, sh what should the real estate investor, the real estate practitioner, what do you feel is a good thing for them to be doing right now? Well, you know, I think you should have uh, property that has a good cash flow, have good tenants. Uh, I think you should try to have debt on the portfolio, especially if you can lock it in at a low rate for a long period of time, because I think you may end up making more money as a debtor than as a real estate owner. Mm -hmm. But also understand, you know, where your property is and what the dynamics are, because, you know, there are going to be properties that suffer and there's going to be properties that, that, that do well in the economic environment that I see coming. Uh, you know, if you have rental property, obviously, the real value of the property is a function of you know what the rental market is like and if you're in an economy where you have very high inflation uh you know it's going to be hard to pass on the rents because you know mm -hmm. people need to pay money for food they need to pay money for a lot of other things there may not be much left over for rent and of course what you have to realize is that demand for housing could you know or or rather supply can increase rather rapidly in depressed situations because everybody who owns a home can prevent can potentially start renting out rooms right so i need extra money i can't afford to pay uh you know my food or my electricity i'm going to rent out one of my bedrooms now all of a sudden there's more supply coming out of the single family housing also a lot of people that live by themselves you know i'm going to get a roommate and and so people are doubling up you might find more families doubling up sharing uh the same residence so all of a sudden you know you've got a lot of supply because people's standard of living is falling and they're trying to accommodate by reducing their costs and so that could make certain types of real estate in certain areas more vulnerable because if the property is just sitting empty and you're not getting any cash flow meanwhile Inflation is increasing the cost of maintaining the properties. Governments are increasing taxes on the properties. There could be a lot of problems. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of parts of the world where you're going to see strengthening currencies, rising real incomes, where real estate prices are doing really well. Because when you look at currency as kind of like a, a zero-sum game or a seesaw, as the dollar loses value, other currencies gain the purchasing power that the dollar loses. So mm -hmm. Americans become poorer, other people become richer. And as those people become richer, uh, they can afford to pay higher rents. They can afford more housing. And, and so it's, you know, it's going to be a mixed picture depending on where you own this property, uh, you know, what's going to happen to it. And certainly even in America, there'll be certain areas uh, that can do well in this environment where others won't. So, you know, you've just got to be careful. And I think you've got to look at prices and valuations. I think some of these markets where prices are very, very high, and clearly you're talking about bubble territory, uh, there is a lot of risk. But if you're looking at buying in areas uh, where, you know, you could buy real estate where it's arguably cheaper to buy than build. I mean, there are plenty of places that you could buy property where it's less than it would cost you to build something comparable. In some cases, it's like you get the land for free uh, because the construction costs right now are so high and they're going to get higher. And it's not only the material costs that are high, it's the labor costs. So as it costs more and more to build new homes, the homes that are already here are that much more valuable because they don't have the competition 
uh, from the new the new homes that are being built because they're not being built because it's too expensive or they can't even do it because the materials and the labor are not even available. You, well, yeah. so how long do you think this current inflationary cycle is going to last? How would we know? How do you know? What do you look for in terms of it maturing or moderating? What What is your expectation for this cycle? I think it's going to be a long time. I, I don't know, you know, when there will be the political wherewithal to do something about it. I mean, I think it's going to have to get really horrific. But I do think that they're going to try a lot of crazy things first, like price controls. Uh, you know, we did that in the 1970s. It didn't work. Um, and in fact, the inflation is already worse now than it was back then when we tried it. Uh, but I think we're going to try it again. Can you and tell I think what that is? Peter, can you tell what price controls are? Well, that's when the government makes it illegal to raise prices, right? They basically fix prices. They say they 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 go after the 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 the, the symptom and not the disease, right? Because if they keep printing money, they keep creating inflation. And if they try to limit price increases, it's not going to stop it. Because what happens then is that the, the it, you have shortages, right? So yes, the price doesn't go up, but what good does that do you if you can't buy the good? The good isn't there. And the way you ration the goods, because in a free market, we ration goods on price. So if there's a short supply, a lot of demand, price goes up. And then some people won't buy it because it becomes too expensive, right? And so there's always a balance between supply and demand. But if the government stops the price from going up, right, and they keep printing money, demand skyrockets, but supply doesn't go up, you have a huge shortage. And so how do you decide who gets the product? Well, you have a long line, right? You wait online, uh, you know, for hours and hours in order to get the product. So if you're not willing to wait online, you're not going to get it. Now, some wealthier people will pay people to wait online for them uh, to get the products. But there are other ways of, you know, distributing the goods other than rationing them through price. Uh, but what, what ends up happening, though, when you have price controls, apart from companies finding ways to get around it. Like they'll come up with a brand new product that is different from the other products. So it's not technically subject to the price control. Um, mm -hmm. But you end up with black markets, right? You end up with goods being available illegally, you know, by uh, mm -hmm. criminals who will sell them at a, at a higher price that's against the law. But if you want to buy this stuff, that's how you buy it, right? You buy it illegally on the black market. And so that's what price controls produce is, is black markets. But, you know, shortages, rationing. I mean, one thing with power, right? If the government puts a control on power, um, we're going to have rolling blackouts. We're going to have to share the power uh, mm -hmm. and everybody's going to have to take turns, you know, having no power as opposed to letting the price go up and mm -hmm. letting people adjust their behavior accordingly, where people just stop using power who can't you know, pay the price or people will be more economic. I mean, that's why you remember the long lines for gas in the 1970s, that's because they were controlling the prices. If they just let the prices go up, uh, there wouldn't have been long lines, right? Just like you know, in the US, every time there's a, a natural disaster, the government wants to go after somebody for price gouging if they if they let if they charge too much. But 
That's a mistake because you actually want the price gouging because it's the best way to ration the goods and also eliminate the supply shortage because if, if the price goes way up, then supply will come in from other areas of the country uh, to meet that price and ultimately the price will come back down. But when you stop the market from sending these signals, uh, then the shortage uh, gets worse and the ultimate upward pressure on prices gets worse. Julian, I listened to your podcast. The other thing you're talking about a lot, you listeners, you guys should be listening to, it's called the Peter Schiff Show, obviously on iTunes and everywhere else. Well, what is, can you explain to the listeners what stagflation is? That's something I've only heard, Julian, I've only heard you talking about. Well, other people talk about it only to basically dismiss it. But what happened was during the 1970s, we had a condition where the economy was weak, but inflation was strong. And that combination was a paradox to Keynesian economists, right? That is the uh, you know, school of economics that pretty much everybody ascribes to these days. But under Keynesian economics, inflation is a result of a strong economy and low unemployment, that when resources are fully utilized and everybody has a job, that's when you get inflation. And of course, that's completely wrong. In fact, it's backwards. And the Keynesians believed that it was only when, and oh, that when you had unemployment and a weak economy, well, that you wouldn't have inflation. So they thought there was a trade-off. They talk about this thing called the Phillips curve, which equates employment with inflation. And so during the 1970s, something happened that the Keynesians thought was impossible. The combination of high unemployment and high inflation. So they had to come up with a brand new word for it because it, they didn't even think it, it could happen. And so that's where they coined the term stagflation. And um, we're experiencing that again, and it's going to be a lot worse. I've been saying, uh, I've been calling it an inflationary depression because I think it's not just stagnation. I think we're going to have real contraction and the inflation is going to be much higher than it was back then. So I think to say it's stagflation won't do it justice as far as the severity. I think inflationary depression is gonna be a more apt description of what we're going to be living with. So you are a firm believer in gold, right? Because gold's been money, real money for 2000 years. Um, I was thinking about asking you a crypto question just to get you going, but we might <laughs> not. <laughs> but as far as uh, how would, what do you, how would gold eventually explain the, I understand holding gold. It's a, it's a, an inflation hedge. People are arguing that crypto is an inflation hedge too. We could talk about that if you want to. Um, Julie and I own gold. We don't own any crypto. So what does it mean for fiat currency if gold were to start becoming more desirable as a form of money? How, how would, would there be a transition or would it, would people- What does that look like? Yeah. What does that look like? Is there, would there be a point well, where- yeah, you know, you asked earlier about the normal inflation rate and the normal inflation rate historically with gold is around one to 2% a year, meaning the supply of gold grows by about one to 2%. And that's about the same rate of growth of the population. So if the population is growing by one to 2% and the supply of gold that that population can own is growing by one to 2%, it's a pretty stable relationship. On the other hand, the supply of money can grow rapidly. Like right now it's growing, I don't know, 20, 30%. I mean, they're printing it like it's going out of style. 
Uh, so as people want to get rid of uh, currency with a high inflation rate or money with a high inflation rate, and they want to go into money with a low inflation rate, that's gold, right? Because gold has a very low historic rate of inflation. And, and so more and more people will choose to own gold uh, as a store of value, as an inflation hedge. Now, as far as crypto, um, I think the inflation rate in cryptocurrencies is much greater than the inflation rate in, in fiat currencies. If you look at the rate with which uh, new cryptos are being created, uh, there's about 13,000 of them now. Uh, new ones come out every day. And of course, each new crypto, uh, the supply keeps growing. And then it's not just cryptocurrencies, it's non-financial tokens, the NFTs. I mean, there's all sorts of crypto things out there uh, and the supply grows every day. Uh, you know, it's just that the demand has been there uh, because it's a speculative mania. But at the end of the day, even Bitcoin doesn't have any of the properties that makes gold a viable money because Bitcoin isn't a commodity. It doesn't have any historic value in relationship to any other commodity. I mean, gold being an actual commodity that is used in jewelry, uh, you know, we're wearing our, our, our identical gold watches uh, again we today. You know, we, yeah, I wore it because, yeah. I, yeah. Gold, so, Peter So you, you, can't, you can't make these things out of Bitcoin and you can't make, look, these watches wouldn't be nearly as nice if they are made out of tin or, 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 or nickel or copper, right? I mean, they're made out of gold and we pay extra because they're made out of gold for a reason. But gold is used in uh, computers. I mean, we're having this conversation. These computers have chips in them. Those chips have gold, right? Because gold is a great conductor of electricity. So there are all sorts of uses in medicine and aerospace for gold, just like there are actual uses for all the other commodities. And so over the centuries, there are historic relationships between the price of gold and the price of copper, between the price of gold and the price of wheat or soybeans, you know, or oil or any other commodity that's used for something. There's a, a, a relationship there. Bitcoin has never been used for anything and will never be used for anything because it has no actual use value. You can trade Bitcoin, right? If somebody wants to buy it from you, you can sell them yours. But absent that, there's absolutely nothing you can do with it. There's nothing that anybody could do with it. There's no real user for Bitcoin the way there are lots of real users for gold. And when I'm storing my gold, what I'm storing is its future use as a metal. And what makes gold so valuable as a store of value is that unlike other commodities, Gold doesn't depreciate, it doesn't deteriorate, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't rust, it doesn't decay. My gold will be exactly the same in a thousand years. And in fact, if you melted down this watch, you can extract all the gold and use it all over again. It's exactly the way it was before it was put into the watch, right? I mean, what other commodities can you use over and over and over again? Uh, and they don't lose any of their, their value. I mean, most commodities, you use them and they're gone. I mean, I buy wheat, I make bread out of it, it's gone, right? I mean, I, don't, I can't reuse it over and over and over again. So gold, the price of gold is basically the present value of all of the uses for that gold for the rest of eternity, which is one of the reasons that the price is so high because it reflects that. And of course, gold is very scarce, so there's not a lot of it, so that's there. But 
even if you even if you accept the fact that Bitcoin is scarce, scarcity in and of itself means nothing. I mean, what good is a scarce thing if it has no no use? But I wouldn't even argue that Bitcoin is scarce because I don't think any of the other cryptocurrencies are really that much different from Bitcoin. They have a different name, but the difference is not as great as the difference between gold and some other metal or between gold and another commodity, right? There you have a, a great difference in physical properties, very little difference between Bitcoin and any of these other coins. You know, one of the reasons I, I laugh about, you know, when the Bitcoin guys want to make fun of Dogecoin and they'll say, ah, Dogecoin is a joke. The joke is, so is Bitcoin. That's why Dogecoin was created, because it's exactly like Bitcoin to show how ridiculous Bitcoin is. So the Bitcoiners just don't get the joke because anything they say about Dogecoin can be said about Bitcoin too. It's the identical criticism. So if you're living in a digital glass house, you shouldn't be throwing stones. Well, so the, the, we're, we, we, the three of us, are surrounded everywhere we go with with uh, crypto people i i think yeah. for every, right <laughs> we, every day, this, more and more. dorado has got to be the epicenter for crypto people on planet so. earth has to be i've heard rumors that um uh soshi i guess who started uh um Doge. bitcoin oh you mean satoki nakamoto that oh, yeah. guy yeah, or that gal guy. no one knows you know who this person is are you sure it's not you i heard it's you <laughs> i wish it were me yeah, right. <laughs> well, I, I just and every time we sit down, we talk with them and we have to, I'm trying to understand. Now, I know some of these have interesting technology that's behind them. Bitcoin is Bitcoin, but some of these others have interesting blockchain technologies and things that you're in uh, indirectly investing in. That's kind of cool. But considering there's over you said twelve hundred, I thought there was like twelve thousand, twelve thousand, almost thirteen, thirteen thousand now or something. I mean, I don't understand how, in what world would that actually, would a cryptocurrency replace the U.S. dollar, let alone become a global replacement for even gold as money? I don't, what, have you ever heard We keep it? looking for that missing link yeah, where we're, we have that we're light bulb go off and go, ah. Yeah. We're trying to understand it. No one has actually explained not that yet. to us. Can you it's, explain? It's, it's not going to happen. It's all part of the fantasy of the, you know, the bubble. I mean, it's really a cult. Uh, what's going on and, and, and people just believe in this, you know, get rich quick uh, fantasy that they have. But the reason I think that we see uh, a lot of people here in our community is some people that did get in early, right, made a lot of money. And some of those people, those early adopters who made a lot of money have moved here. Right. And having a lot of money is one of the reasons that you would want to move here. And of course, now you have to have a lot of money to afford to be here. Uh, so we're getting a distorted view uh, of uh, Bitcoin, because I think a lot of the people who are into Bitcoin, the vast majority of them got in over the last few years. So some of them are ahead. Some of them are behind, uh, you know, but the ones that are ahead, I mean, if you bought Bitcoin at 30,000, 40,000, now it's at 60,000. I mean, yeah, you've got a gain. But it's not the kind of spectacular gain that the people who bought Bitcoin at a dollar, you a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, you know, they're sitting on huge gains. But there's not that many people like that. The vast majority of the people got in with all the hype, with all the sensationalism of the last several years. And those are going to be the bag holders, right? They're going to be getting in at the top of, of the Ponzi or the pyramid. But I do think a lot of the people who got in earlier. Uh, who didn't 
know to leave the party, who stayed at the party too long, uh, they're going to end up giving back most, if not all, of their gains. And in fact, they may end up, end up losing money, uh, especially if they bought more along the way, right? Some people might have bought some Bitcoin at a dollar, and maybe they only put in a little bit of money. But then when it got to five or 10,000, they got really excited and they put in more, right? And now they're still ahead. But if we crash back down to 1,000 or 500, even though they may have some Bitcoin at a dollar or $10, their average cost may be quite a bit higher now, especially if they put in more money at the higher prices. Because I think in the early days, people were like nervous about putting a lot of money in it. So they just put a little bit in to see what would happen. But then once it went way up, they became more confident. They had the courage to invest larger amounts or maybe the stupidity to do it. But uh, so when it comes down, they will have you know, averaged up. I think the smart money, and there's, there is some smart money in Bitcoin, obviously. The smart money is selling and has been selling for a while. That's and actually, all yeah, we've been having conversations with some of these Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin folks, uh, you know, crypto folks, and they're, they are selling and they're buying real mm -hmm. estate. And there, a lot of them are buying real estate here, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating. They are trying to, but we have to be nice to the crypto people, especially here in Dorado. They do throw the best parties. There's no, you can't argue with that. <laughs> well, that's always the case. You know, I remember I went to this conference uh, in 2005, the Western Regional Mortgage Bankers Annual Conference in Las Vegas. I went there twice. You know, you can see my presentation from 2006 on YouTube. If you just Google Peter Schiff Mortgage Bankers, and I went there basically looking for people to invest in my hedge fund to short the subprime market. But the year before I spoke, and that was at the height of the frenzy in 05. And you wouldn't believe, I mean, they had tigers in cages. I mean, this thing, you know, you know I, I remember one of the, the sponsors of the event was a company called Sub Subprime. Oh, you know, no. I, mean, I even have to find their pen because, you know, it was like, you know, you know, Ex-con will finance you. I mean, anybody can get a mortgage because they were they, these were for the people that their credit was so bad that they weren't even considered subprime. It was like you were even worse than that. But don't worry, we'll finance you. But yeah, I mean, whenever you have the most amount of easy money, you have the best parties because easy come, easy go. Right. I mean, you got all kinds of money. You, you can spend it on parties. So it's great that they can throw the parties and I'm happy to go to the parties, <laughs> you know, but, but eventually the party is going to end uh, for the crypto people. One last question. I really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed this, Peter. Yes, thank You're you. very, very generous with your time and knowledge. And I love how you can take something that's complicated and you can explain yeah. it in such a simplistic way. And you're not trying to be condescending with how you're trying to explain things, which is unique for an economist like you. The last question would be, so a year from now, and we're talking again on October 27, 2022, what will the two or three things, what would be the two or three things that happened, at, you know, in that previous year that people will most be most surprised about, in your opinion? Well, I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, it's a year is, you know, in the scheme of things is a pretty short time horizon. A lot of things could happen that would surprise people. I mean, the crypto bubble could pop, uh, could crash, you know, 80, 90 percent or more. That would surprise a lot of people in crypto. Um, you know, inflation could really take off. I mean, that would surprise all the people who believe it's transitory. Uh, the price of gold could really spike. That would surprise a lot of people who think it's dead and think that it's no longer an inflation hedge. 
Uh, maybe the bond market could collapse and interest rates could really go up long term, which would probably surprise a lot of people. Um, you know, there, 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 there are a lot of events that could happen. Maybe the markets will crash, maybe the stock market. I mean, you know, because it's certainly in bubble territory. There's certainly all sorts of evidence of not just irrational exuberance, uh, you know, but irrational exuberance on steroids, which was the, the, the title of my, my podcast I just did. So crazy things That's are going exciting. on. But, you know, what I think people need to do is fun, invest based on the fundamentals, forget about all the noise, recognize that you don't want to be in paper uh, because the biggest losers are going to be the people holding the paper uh, other than the people holding the crypto, which isn't even as good as paper. But if you've got bonds or things like that, you're going to, you're going to suffer. So you want to own real things. And personally, what I'm involved with is I like to buy companies that pay good dividends. I mean, just like you buy real estate, you want rent. I buy companies that pay good dividends, companies that own a lot of real resources uh, that I own as a shareholder, whether it's natural resources, you know, mining, energy, agriculture, or plant and equipment uh, that they have, uh, you know, pro you know pr goods that they produce based on uh, this equipment, that there's real value there. Uh, earnings that can be returned to me as a shareholder. I like companies that are not reliant on Americans as their customers because Americans are broke. I like companies that rely on productive consumers that actually have real jobs and produce things and have savings and don't rely on, on government. So there are better certain companies. And that's why, you know, for people, if you're, you know, your listeners, you're making some money in real estate, but you've got some other money that you want to keep liquid, you want to have a portfolio potentially to draw on to maybe buy real estate in the future. If you see some bargains, that's what I'm doing, managing portfolios for people uh, through my mutual funds and through separately managed accounts. If you're a U.S. citizen, you can buy my mutual funds anywhere. Uh, you can take a look at them at europacfunds.com. Uh, if you're outside the U.S., you can't buy my funds, but you can set up a, an account with me at the broker dealer here at the asset management company here in Puerto Rico, and we can directly manage a portfolio in foreign stocks, in gold stocks, in the type of investments that will do well in stagflation. And if you don't own any physical gold or silver, you can get some of that through Shift Gold. And that's at shiftgold.com. Excellent. Well, Thank we really sincerely yeah. appreciate it, yep. Peter. It's fantastic. Finally having you on the show. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck, guys. Thank yes. you. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.